Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. When was the last time someone hung up on you? Like, not dropped a call where the cell network goes out, but someone straight up hung up on you in the middle of a conversation. Did you call the person back or give up? He hung up on me. He maybe thought someone is pranking him. Mahmoud al couldn't just give up on the phone call he made because he was in the middle of the Aegean Sea, trying to make the trip from Turkey to Greece. It's a short trip. When you stand at the Turkish beach and you look at the island, you can see it actually with your own eyes. Mahmoud is making this journey in the dead of night, and the boat he's on is full of other refugees. The captain, an Algerian guy, is not a real captain. He's a smuggler, and the Greeks are trying to keep all of these people out. So this short trip is a lot more dangerous. That's even before this happens. The so-called captain, he started to steer the port. After like half an hour, the engines just stopped. Mahmoud's on a less-than-seaworthy boat, packed with people trying to escape across a border in the darkness. And he's stuck. But he's got one piece of technology that might help him. He has a smartphone. We thought, okay, we have two choices. We can swim to the, to the shore, or we can call the Coast Guards. The GPS tells the refugees they've managed to eke this boat across the border in the middle of the sea. So Mahmoud gets chosen to call the Greek Coast Guard. I called them. Amazingly, he picked up right away. Mahmoud says, can you help us? And the Greek Coast Guard guy says, where are you? I'm in a boat full of refugees in Greek waters. And the Greek guy says, you're calling from a weird number. I don't believe you. And then... On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. In our second season, we've got one question in mind. Four little words. The answer isn't so simple. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> I hope so. Can it save us? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, a look at technology and borders, how it helps people make dangerous journeys all over the world. We're going to hear the rest of Mahmoud and his smartphone's trip across the water in darkness. We're going to hear about a refugee journalist banned from his home who uses software to undermine violence that he has left behind and about what technology can and can't do for those who have reached the other side. No one will be glad when his home is destroying, but I'm glad that I'm here. So, technology crossing borders. Can it save us? Hey, remember, there's a special code hidden in every one of our episodes, so listen closely. There are more refugees on the move right now than ever. Some are on the move because they're trying to find a better life. Others are trying to stay alive. So let's get back to Mahmoud, sitting in a boat with about 30 people, with an engine that has stopped working and a smartphone, and a Greek Coast Guard officer who just hung up on him. I called again, and I told him, we are 30 men and women from Syria, and we are refugees, and we run out of fuel. 
we are in the middle of the sea and we need your help. And I know you are not convinced that I am with the with other people on the boat. Why doesn't this Coast Guard guy believe him? Two reasons. Because Mahmoud's calling from a Jordanian number and because his line is too quiet. I told him, yeah, because people uh, are trying to, to be quiet so I can hear you and talk to you. Would you prefer those people to just panic or something? So Mahmoud says, okay, everybody, I need you to yell. They shouted like they never did before. I, I think those people was waiting for such a moment. So this Coast Guard officer told me, yeah, okay, I believe you now. Then the Coast Guard guy asks for a location, and Mahmoud sends that, plus some photos of the people on the boat. And he told me, we will send help, so try to stay calm. Don't do anything at all. Just be calm, and we will come to you. By this time, it's three in the morning. There are distant lights, but it's really hard to see, maybe 50 feet in any direction from the boat. They wait. Suddenly, those big lights from the Coast Guards just turned on. It was like just a daylight. Just like if, if the sun just rised suddenly. This particular boat of refugees made it. A lot of them don't. Almost 4,000 people have died in the Mediterranean Sea this year. That's 1,000 more than died in the 9-11 attacks. Mahmoud survived this harrowing trip across these waters because of his smartphone. But just the fact that we know the story at all also depends on the same technology. Because Business Insider Breaking News editor Natasha Bertrand used technology to find it. Natasha, thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me. You report on breaking news for for Business Insider. You've done some work involving the refugee crisis, but you're here in New York. Uh, yeah, so I, I started to get really interested in um, the war in Syria and the broader geopolitical ramifications of of you know everything that 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 crisis would cause. And based on those articles that I started writing, I started getting messages from people over there thanking me. How were you hearing from these folks? A lot of it was through Facebook because a lot of uh, everybody's on everyone's Facebook. on Facebook. <laughs> yes, and they would just yeah they would send me messages. Um, some I would communicate with via email. Ultimately, it would turn out to be WhatsApp conversations if we wanted to talk more frequently. And Rabia is a Syrian refugee from Aleppo. He reached out to me, and he said, "Hey, my brother Mahmoud." He's a lawyer. He graduated with a law degree from the University of Aleppo. And now he's living in Germany. Um, So I reached out to him. I sent him a friend request on Facebook. And he just happened to mention, you know, it was was funny because I almost didn't make it. The boat broke down in the middle of the Mediterranean. You know, he might not have been able to get to the Greek islands if not for, you know, his cell phone. (laughs) So Mahmoud relied on tech and you do too. You couldn't do this reporting without Facebook or WhatsApp, I imagine. No. I think that it makes it a lot easier to establish a connection with the people that are fleeing these war zones at this point. Um, You know, rather, they're not just, you know, disembodied numbers or, you know, just 
massive, you know, refugees or migrants or you know, whatever. That's just impossible for us to imagine. Um, you know, now they're tweeting. Now they're sharing photos of it on social media. Now they're it's just a lot. It's a lot easier to experience what they're experiencing in real time. Technology isn't just being used as a tool for refugees making difficult journeys or reporters who want to tell that story. Mahmoud's next stop as a refugee was a refugee camp. The presence of technology in refugee camps varies a little bit depending on what country they're in and when they were first set up. The Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, right on the border with Syria, was set up in 2012. About 80,000 people lived there. Just like any town of 80,000 people, um, it's about... Five square miles. This is Carlene Maitland. She's from the Institute for Information Policy at Penn State University. And she's talking to us on the line from Jordan, where she's researching how the camp's social structure and economy are informed by technology. They have everything from wedding dress stores to mobile phone stores right on the main street. You can buy anything there. And um, there's a big demand for electricity. People in Zatari have all kinds of tech needs. Carlene's research suggests about 80% of refugees under 25 have mobile phones, for instance. And since a lot of refugees are in limbo, they seem to be even more active on social media than they would be otherwise. And there's another tech area where Zatari is actually way ahead of a lot of other places, buying groceries. Yep. The World Food Program set up two grocery stores, and aid organizations gave refugees their own prepaid MasterCards to pay for food and other goods. The refugees could swipe the card, much like we do in the United States. But they didn't stop there. There was one problem with the MasterCards, black markets. So they wanted to put an end to the black markets, but then they quickly realized, why do you need a card? The solution? The UNHCR, or United Nations Refugee Agency, scans refugees' eyeballs. They scan their iris. And in this way, refugees can pay for groceries. Refugees will just both have their account debited and authenticated through the iris scan. So they won't need a card anymore. And so it's more advanced technology than you in an average grocery store in the United States. They've, they've leapfrogged the stuff that we use, and they're actually further ahead. They have, yeah. Why do you think it's happened there in uh, that camp, but not here in the U.S.? I think that anytime you have government or intergovernmental agencies are distributing goods to people in need, uh, there's a certain power imbalance that's established. And so people who are in need are... Willing to have their retinas scanned, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly, exactly. Dr. Carlene Maitland of the Institute for Information Policy at Penn State University. Stay with us. Codebreaker will be back in a minute.
We've heard how important technology is to refugees making dangerous trips across borders and how it's been woven into everyday life in refugee camps. It plays a role in the next step, too. Remember Mahmoud? After spending time in a camp in Greece, eventually he made his way to Germany. Last year, Germany accepted over a million refugees. There are more refugees trying to resettle there than most other places in Europe, partly because of Germany's open-door immigration policy, which is not without its political consequences. It's getting more controversial all the time. Settling these refugees is also a problem. And as per usual, the tech world thinks it can solve that problem by training them for jobs in the tech sector. Berlin is a big tech hub in Germany. I went there recently to visit Ready School. It's a startup working with refugees. This is Beta House, a six-floor techie co-working space on the east side of Berlin. Every floor is full of people. All the people are busy working on their laptops, improving their projects. 29-year-old Fadi Zaim, a guy with piercing blue eyes and a big smile, is showing me around. On this floor of Beta House, there's a busy cafe with a freestanding tree house in the middle of the room and bookshelves and a lofted nook for meetings, all built out of scrap lumber. It has a very special, let's say, taste. This is the taste of Berlin. I like it. What, what does that mean? They call Berlin, it's uh, sexy, uh, but poor. The city's former mayor used this phrase, arm aber sexy, a decade ago to try and draw more tech investment to Berlin. And it's working. Rents have stayed relatively cheap, while the city's constellation of techie co-working spaces, like Beta House, has continued to expand. These spaces and the visibility of larger homegrown tech companies like SoundCloud and Rocket Internet are good news for startups. This could also be good news for refugees looking for work. Skilled refugees, which brings us back to Ready School, where Fadi took classes and is now volunteering. Ready School was created by members of the local startup community who want to use technology to solve complex social challenges. Ready is starting a three-month digital integration program for its next class of refugee students. Topics can include everything from basic website building or introduction to robotics to more advanced computer programming. This is our calendar plan, and this is our to-do, let's say, to-do list. That is a lot of post-it notes. We are, we are trying and a big to calendar. Everything's, yeah. <laughs> Fadi and his coworkers are also about to move Ready's operations to a different co-working space. Yeah, because we used to be in an in a in Axel Springer, and tomorrow we we'll start moving our stuff to Hubraum. Fadi has been on the move for a while on a journey that started long before Ready School. I left uh, Syria in 2011. And I was uh, looking for a second home, let's call it, because my home country is Syria, but I couldn't have the chance to stay there. Fadi left his home in Syria's capital, Damascus, soon after violence broke out. He looked for work and a new home in Dubai, then Lebanon. It was supposed to be temporary. But Damascus, where Fadi's family ran a construction company building the German and American embassies, has only gotten worse. Now, unfortunately, all the embassies are closed during the, the, the war. So yeah, we, we cl- everything is closed and there is nothing now. In 2014, he moved with his family to Berlin. Are you glad that you're here and not home? No one will be glad when he's out of his home and his home is destroying. But I'm glad that I'm here and I had the chance the, and the support that I could start over. But starting over is hard. 
Fadi is one of over a million refugees in Germany. The process of applying for asylum is painfully bureaucratic. It can take anywhere from five months to several years. You get bored. You get frustrated. But earlier this year, Fadi signed up for Ready School's training program, which is designed to support entrepreneurship among the country's refugees while they are in limbo, waiting for work permits. Ready has students from all over. People from Afghanistan, uh, Persian, from Iran. They've had some promising opportunities. A few of the program's 90 graduates so far have scored internships at Cisco. Mark Zuckerberg has visited the school and talked shop with programmers. Ready School's co-founder and CEO is Anna Kiregaard. I think it's really critical that that first year when you arrive, that you continue learning while the German government is sorting out your, your paperwork and you can, let's call it, re-enter society again. Germany needs more workers, specifically in the tech industry. It's got an aging population. Its birth rate is low. There are a reported 700,000 open jobs there, just waiting to be filled. There's also a lot of snake oil being sold about how learning to code is the answer. So I asked Anna about the danger of overselling the idea of tech as a silver bullet. You cannot teach people to code and be a good programmer in three months. What I think we can do is to open the door and make people curious. Anna points out that Ready students have included architects and archaeologists as well as programmers and even kids with no formal training. So sometimes it's merely about continuing education while refugees with all skill sets wait for their work permits. Meanwhile, Germany's open-door policy to refugees isn't popular among all of its citizens. A leader of one right-wing party in the country recently suggested it might be time to start shooting refugees who cross Germany's borders. A new integration law says that the government can restrict where refugees live. Anna is trying to fight this idea that refugees are outsiders. These are young, talented, driven people who are pioneers, and they would have been the future of Syria or Afghanistan, but they've decided to leave. And I think we have a responsibility to protect and take care of them here. But if we only see it as a responsibility and not as an opportunity, then I think we're completely missing the point. It, it should be seen as a gift that they're coming here and that they want to participate in our society. I think it's only smart to invest in these people. It'll come back plentiful for Germany and for Europe. Fadi took what he learned about online payment tools at Ready School and started a catering business for Syrian food with his mom. Do you think this program is saving people's lives? Yes, of course. When Once you are providing the, the student the opportunity to get a job, to start their own business, I believe that's kind of saving people's lives. We are preparing the student for the next step where they are starting their own futures. It isn't clear what Fadi's future is, whether it's in Berlin or back in Damascus. But he has his own business, and he's hoping the tech skills he learned at Ready School that helped him build his business will help others like him on the move, looking to start over. Technology is a tool for people on both sides of every border. It can break down walls. It can fortify them, too. John Lawson is part of the border fortification system that Americans hear about a lot, a border close to home, a stretch of almost 2,000 miles between Mexico and the southern states of the U.S. Lawson is not interested in talking about whether or not we should build a wall. He is interested in patrolling the border, because to him, protecting the border is logical. Perhaps more importantly, 
protecting the lives of people who are trying to cross that border, whoever they are and whatever their reasons, is also a logical act. So describe to me a little bit. I'm here in New York. You're in Arizona. What's it look like down there? We have a lot of terrain out there. We got 262 miles of border on uh, in Tucson sector to cover, and that goes from uh, the boot heel, we call it, in New Mexico, the uh, edge of New Mexico, sure. all the way out to the Yuma County line. What kind of technology are you using today to patrol the border? Nogales is probably the most advanced border patrol area on the southwest border uh, because we have all of the newest technology down there. The latest thing that we have is called an integrated fixed tower. What's on that tower is a high-powered day camera, high-powered night camera, a radar, and it's, a, it's an amazing piece of technology compared to what we used to have. Uh, I used to be one of those guys who sat on top of that hill with that nighttime camera uh, looking out there uh, trying to get that panoramic view, but frankly, it was like looking through a straw. What's it like now? What's the analogy for now? Basically, you're looking at a map. Agent has a GPS. He knows exactly how far it is from his location to where the group is. So it's not, uh, well, they're right in front of you. And 15 minutes later, they're right in front of you. Uh, we have these conversations. <laughs> sure. When you're out there on the ground in the middle of the night, knowing exactly how far something is from you, it lets you determine how much energy you want to expend at once trying to get there. And you, you don't know how many times I've walked for half an hour by myself to find a cow. Uh, <laughs> right. Does that create more problems than it solves, these sensors and them going off? Uh, no. Yeah, we have to do our due diligence and find out what it was. And sometimes that involves getting out of your truck and walking for half an hour to see whether it was a cow or not. Um, right. So this is where if you happen to have that unmanned aircraft system, if you have uh, some cameras in the area, they can see that that sensor uh, activated and they can look over and say, you know what, there's people out there. What's the impact of technology on your job overall? I mean, do you think it's positive? It is. Uh, the, the cell phones have made it more difficult in that the uh, the smuggling network has a better ability to contact each other and to plan for uh, for us, to see us, to scout us. These guys who will sit on a hill or on second floor of a, a building in Mexico, and they'll use a cell phone to call the migrants, you know, one by one and tell them when to cross, where to cross, uh, when to run, what bush to hide behind. Mm. Are some of these people that you're going out and picking up, are they in trouble? I mean, not just not just in terms of in trouble with the law for crossing the border when they shouldn't be, but... Do they need help? These people put their they put their lives in the hands of a of a smuggler, and that smuggler is looking for uh, it's a commodity, right? He's he's moving people, and depending on how many people he moves, he gets paid a certain amount. They don't think twice about if there's a group of say five or six people, and one of them sprains their ankle, or one of them's pregnant, can't keep up, something happens, and that person is not able to keep going, they'll get left behind. And it gets, it gets hot, people get disoriented, and they become dehydrated. And from there, it uh, leads to kidney failure. And after that, I mean, at that point, they're looking at best-case scenario, they're on dialysis. Worst-case scenario, they're not going to make it. Uh, so we find that all the time. And in fact, this past year, the biggest game-changer we've got is that we're messaging out to migrants that they can call 911 when they're in trouble. Uh, we set up a, uh, a call center at the Joint Intelligence and Operations Center here in Tucson, and they will give us coordinates, which is what uh, the county dispatch is able to get from pinging that cell phone and determining what tower it's hitting. Wow. This year, we're looking at uh, 
approximately 1,400 rescues directly as a result of that 911 call. You're using technology to try and help literally save people's lives in some scenarios. Um, yes. What's the weirdest thing you've seen? Uh, you're gonna kind of, you're kind of catching me on that one. I've I've seen some weird stuff, but uh, a lot of it was just kind of sad. Uh, I did run across a uh, a gentleman at one point as driving down the road in the early in the morning, and he'd been shot several times uh, with a twenty two from somebody he had a falling out with at a party, and they just left him for dead. And uh, I had to uh, I had to get him to a hospital. Uh, so that's that's you know one of the the things that you run into. Uh, did he make it? Yeah, he he's fine. He was he was fine. Uh, I had a guy who was so thankful that I found him that he gave me his rosary beads. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you, you run into stuff like that. Agent John Lawson is operations officer at the Joint Task Force West in Arizona. Agent Lawson, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Have a good day. In a place like Arizona, Mexico is a palpable presence. No matter how different they might seem politically or otherwise, you never forget where your neighbors live and who they are. Sometimes the place just over the border is full of people you left behind. People you want to see thrive or survive just as you aim to do when you crossed over. This is the perspective of a guy called Alexandra Nyangeko. He's in Rwanda, which is next door to his home country. I decided to leave Burundi. He left his home in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, some months back, after Burundi's president said he would run for a third term, which many said was against the constitution. Political protests in the country turned violent. A dramatic escalation in violence between protesters and police on the streets of Bujumbura. Protesters have erected barricades like these across the capital. They won't stop until the president vows to leave office. Alexandra and a bunch of local journalists reported on what was happening. This did not go over so well. The chief of police in Bujumbura came to my office and he said, I will uh, finish with you if you continue like, like that. But he continued. Then there were the death threats by phone. And then... They have attacked the house where my family were. And two grenades were uh, thrown there. After he had two grenades thrown at his house, which luckily didn't do their intended damage, Alexander decided to take his family across the border to Rwanda. But when he and a bunch of other journalist refugees got there, they didn't want to stop reporting on how bad things were. So we decided not to stay doing nothing as journalists, so we were looking how we can continue our work. They still had sources in Burundi, and they wanted to keep providing information on what was happening, so they started making daily news reports. Those reports have a growing audience, but they don't get broadcast on FM or AM. Which is uh, not possible as it's controlled by the government. It's done on the Facebook-owned messaging service WhatsApp. Big group messages by invite only for hundreds of people who want news that isn't being controlled by the government. Do you think that this technology you're using can save people? This technology can save because, you know, I have many testimonies. This someone was, is arrested by the police, people who were tortured. 
uh, in uh, unknown uh, places. And when we, we knew that, we broadcasted, you know, sometimes those who had arrested those people, they released them. So just to make sure I understand, you're being alerted to um, the arrests or the torture of some yeah. people in Burundi, and then you are reporting reporting on that. Exactly. And and then some of those people are being released because people are finding out about it and the government uh, there does not want to keep them uh, if people know about it. Yeah. I always like to say as a journalist, if you're not making someone angry, you're not doing your job. So <laughs> I suppose that's a, a sign that you're all continuing to do good work there. But uh, congratulations on the work that you're doing and, and we thank you for your time. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. We have heard a lot of stories about how technology is informing, changing, impacting the journeys that refugees and migrants and others are taking, in some cases impacting the jobs of folks who are supposed to be keeping them out or patrolling the border. So to wrap things up, let's talk to CNET News Editor-in-Chief Connie Guglielmo. Connie has been reporting on this with her team at CNET over the last summer, and she joins me now to talk about it. Connie, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Why were you so compelled to do reporting on this subject? Well, I, like many other people, saw the photo of Aylan Kurdi, who was the three-year-old who washed up on that beach in Turkey last year after his family tried to unsuccessfully cross the Aegean Sea into Greece. And as a parent and as a human being, I was horrified. But I was also angry that a lot of people just liked the photo or retweeted it. We have all of this technology to share this story, and we're very passive about how we use it. But that set me on the path to thinking, well, exactly how is technology going to help all of these people, more than a million people who are leaving countries and heading to Europe as part of this mass refugee exodus. What is the picture that came back in terms of how people are using technology? So two things, I would say. Number one is smartphones are not just a nicety to have. They're a necessity. People use their smartphones as a lifeline to connect them with their friends, with their family, to find out information, to tap into news networks, to search websites. How important that mobile device is to you cannot be understated. My second thing is that a smartphone is only good if you have Wi-Fi and electricity. And what we found, at least in one camp, is that it was less useful to people than a brick. People that we met in a camp on the border of Serbia and Hungary with no electricity and no Wi-Fi, our reporters there brought a 360-degree camera and set it up in the center of camp to capture the scene. And they put that camera on the top of a, a large cardboard box so they could get a higher view. And everyone came over to them and were looking and walking around. And at first they thought that they were interested in the camera, but all they wanted to know was who was going to keep the cardboard box. But a phone, like I said, with no electricity or Wi-Fi has less worth than a brick. Do you think that this crisis is less bad than it would be otherwise because of technology? Is it less bad? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, can it save us? Can technology save us 
who are going through this, who are having this experience, being displaced and having to travel? The most important thing to remember about tech is that it is a means to an end. It's not an end. You have people who are driving a lot of these decisions. So the most you know, high-tech, fanciest technology that you can have at your disposal is not going to accomplish anything unless there's a will behind it to apply it to solve problems. But do you think brass tacks, I mean, just adding this stuff does help as a whole? All things considered, yeah, I think it can. I think that knowing where you have uh, pathways of uh, friendly um, groups willing to help you versus people who are trying to stop you, having that information at your fingertips is very, very useful. I try to explain to people, put yourself in the place of someone who is on this journey. What would you want to have? Having a, a device that tells you where you should go, where you could sleep, where you might get some food or clothing, is that useful to you or not? And I think everyone would agree those are useful things to have, for sure. Connie Guglielmo is editor-in-chief of CNET News. Connie, thank you very much for talking about all this stuff with me. My pleasure. By the way, as you know, there has been a secret code in every one of our episodes. There is one in this one, too. This is the last episode of the season, so to find out what comes next, you can enter the code at codebreaker.codes. You ready? What always happens with technology is that when it is used positively, it actually breaks down borders or shows you that they're artificial. It increases our intelligence by showing us that what makes us the same easily passes by what makes us different. In a way, it makes the human condition more universal. Isn't that the goal of intelligence? Our show is produced by Claire Tennisgetter. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our engineer, Jake Gorski. We got production support from Adrian Ma and Marketplace tech producer Stephanie Hughes. Thanks as well to Jenny Hatfield, Megan Ellingbow, Tony Wagner, Nishat Kerwa, Paul Brent, Arjuna Soriano, Faye Orlov, Levi Sharp, Danielle Stevens, Katie Long, Betsy Streisand, Jeff Peters, Nicole Childers, Lori Ballou, Avery Gallison, John Gordon, and Molly Wood. Big thanks to Tina Admens and everyone who made this season possible. Marketplace's executive producer is Sitar Nieves. Deborah Clark is Marketplace's vice president. Our theme music is by Mux Mool. Our show is made in partnership with the nice folks at Tech Insider and their robot overlord, Dan Bobkoff. You can get updated on their stories and much more at businessinsider.com. Just don't believe what they say about us. Sexy. Uh, but poor. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a marketplace production from APM. 